Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, June 29th, and we're talking about the last 25 years of tech. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com's Dan Klein. Dan, what's going on? Oh, hey, Dylan. How are you? So, I'm upset we're not doing video today because I've dressed exactly as Pac-Man circa 25 <laughs> years ago. I would love for that to be true, but you are in your standard. You have like your own kind of uniform, much like a, a Steve Jobs type character. I, I know what you are going to be wearing pretty much every time we get on the horn together. It's always a black shirt. Sometimes it's short sleeve. Sometimes it's long sleeve. I, I literally have a closet like Fred Flintstone, where it's it's basically those two shirts, just rows of them. Hey, it, you know, it eliminates one of your choices. I think one of my favorite April Fool's Day pranks I've ever seen, uh, a couple years ago, H&M launched a Mark Zuckerberg line. And it was gray t-shirts and jeans, and that was the entirety of the line. I thought that was really funny. I, I actually researched what Jobs and Zuckerberg had to say about that, and I work from home alone. So why would I spend any time? Like, who's going to judge me? The guy at Starbucks? <laughs> it's just not that important. Yeah, you don't see enough people every day that it really – like, they're not going to judge you for wearing the same thing every day, right? Right, <laughs> and when I come into the office, you guys are slobs, so it's really <laughs> – <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, we, we enjoy our casual nature here. Um, all right, so Dan, we are talking uh, 25 years of tech, and the reason we are doing that is because The Fool is celebrating its 25th anniversary this weekend. And so, we have uh, a lot going on for that. If you go to our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, all that, uh, there are a lot of pictures, magazine covers, audio clips from the past 25 years. So, if you're a longtime Fool fan, Go check those out. Um, it, it will definitely be something you'll enjoy. Um, we have a lot of ground to cover in talking 25 years of tech. You know, every host has kind of talked about this topic a little bit def- differently with their sector. For us, I, we're talking not only about the time where tech kind of dominated. We're talking about when tech became something that everyone interacted with. It was really a major transition. I mean, obviously, we're very different ages, which we'll talk about in a minute, <laughs> but. There was a point where there was no technology in your house to 10 years later, your life revolved around technology. Yeah. And and I think that the two of us are actually in very good positions to talk about tech from different perspectives, right? Because in 1993, I was probably like eating bugs and like chasing a ball around in my backyard because I was three years old. And and you, what were you doing in 1993, Dan? Uh, so I was a junior in college. And I think I've told you this story on the air before, but at the time I had access to email, but my school newspaper had one email account. And all you could use it to do was email other giant school institutions and you could literally like hey email at another school do you know so and so and like it was a lot of like hey i'm calling from a plane where there was no point to it it was just sort of and that was sort of when dial up internet and aol was starting to take hold but in 1993 i was uh, laying out newspaper pages manually on a a mac computer that had an external 20 megabyte hard drive as someone that works in editorial now i am so thrilled that that is not our process <laughs> Just rendering a page could take like 20 minutes and you couldn't use photos. You had to use physical photos. And and yeah, it was a very involved process compared to what it would be now. That's all to say that you and I have very different perspectives on the last 25 years of tech. I basically grew up with tech in the household. And this is something that you kind of adopted. I think that makes us pretty well suited to have this conversation. Um, you mentioned you know AOL being in people's homes. I think the first thing that you have to talk about when you're talking about tech over the past 25 years is the rise of internet and, and the access to the internet that people finally had. So in 1995, when I was was finishing college, 
my actual office had a CompuServe account. And CompuServe was sort of an early predecessor. It was dial-up internet. And your your username was like a phone number, 563-420. So AOL was sort of the first mainstream version of that. And that was really the change. That was when it became common for people, you know, 30 million, whatever the number grew to at its height, for people to have email addresses. And then it moved to work and other providers. But that was kind of the dividing point. And you you think about adoption here. I saw a stat that just blew my mind. <laughs> it was like in 1993, 23% of U.S. households had a computer. Basically, zero of them had internet access. <laughs> you fast forward to 2000, 50% had computers in the home, 40% had internet access. So that adoption happened really quick. And part of it was because AOL was so easy to use. Um, I think it was maybe 2011 before my mother realized that AOL wasn't the internet. It was just a service that had some news. It had some stock prices. It had uh, one time Motley Fool. Um, You know, but but to 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 show you how far I go back, my AOL address was Dan Klein at AOL.com. You were the original. You got in early. (laughs) (laughs) That's the benefit of being an early adopter is you get to choose your username. Um, So not only do we see a lot of change with how people were coming online, right? You have dial up. You have that eventually going over to broadband. Uh, in kind of like the early 2000s, but you have a lot of change in what people are doing online. You know, we have these web portals that really dominated the early internet era, specifically AOL and Yahoo. And then Google passes Yahoo in visitor count in 2006, and and that was kind of a big moment, I think, for what got us to the current state of tech. Yeah, I mean, Google took us to the point where the internet stopped being just a directory of content sites. If you look back at how Yahoo was organized. It was the yellow pages. It was really just, where do I find baseball scores? Where do I find... Google started answering your questions, and people started using that data to create new products. So so once Google became dominant, there was this absolute explosion of website demand and, you know, sort of bringing you to the current world where, you know, if you want to see video footage of a penguin hugging a nun, it would probably take you eight seconds to find that. Not even, Dan. I guarantee you one and a half <laughs> seconds, as long as you're connected to good internet. But but yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you go back to you know the, the 90s, early 2000s, I mean, people were publishing books saying what websites were good. You know, it was, it was that yeah. type of navigation. Well, I mean, I remember in the early days, if like, you know, I sent someone a photo, which was taken on a, you know, a, a digital camera or scanned or some archaic technology, it would take them like 10 minutes to download <laughs> that. Whereas now, if you and I want to watch The Godfather simultaneously on our laptops in different places, it doesn't take any time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how quickly uh, we've been able to deliver content and, and how much richer that content has gotten. Um, I think one of the other big changes that comes with this is how people are accessing the internet. And so, I mentioned that computer stat before. Um, in 93, this, this actually was surprisingly high for me. 10% of Americans had a cell phone. I thought that was higher than I would have expected. I guess you have to remember, though, those phones had pretty limited functionality, and they were yeah, basically I, the size of a brick. When they say 10% had a cell phone, a lot of those cell phones were built into cars and you use them to like tell your family you had an accident. Like they're they're the expense. I mean, I I got a cell phone maybe in 95, 96 and it was like 
$60 a month. And that got me like 20 minutes. Like it was like a crazy amount of money to be able to do anything on your phone. That makes your current wireless plan look pretty good, Dan. It, well, I, I think that's been the seismic change about how people access, you know, information is we've moved into a world and really in the last two years where pretty much every wireless plan is unlimited. You know, you, you, you no longer have have to count. Do you remember when you had to count text messages? Was that ever a thing for you? <laughs> yeah, I do. I remember being charged <laughs> per text message and my mom being furious with me. <laughs> yeah. And for, for a very long time, you know, my wife, son and I had different data plans. I would have 10 gigs and they would each have one and we'd have to track it. And, that, you know, now they don't they still don't use that much data, but there's no reason to not have unlimited yeah, yeah, it, it just makes too much sense, and and really, you see a lot of people using mobile devices instead of using laptops or desktops for a lot of the traffic that they would be doing. I mean, the major internet uh, companies now uh, see most of their traffic and most of their revenue coming from mobile. You look at Facebook, you look at Alphabet. That's certainly the case. And uh, yeah, I mean, and it's I believe the number was eighty seven percent. Maybe it's even higher now. Have a smartphone, so. The sheer amount of people that aren't turning to a computer. I even look at older generations. My mother has a computer, but I'd say 98% of her internet access is on an iPad. So it's really shifted from the days of like being rooted to a computer. I'm still primarily a computer guy. I mean, we work on computers all day, so we have them in our hands maybe more than other people do. Yeah, I have friends that have totally ditched computers, you know, aside from their work computer, and they just have a, you know, a smartphone or a kind of phablet style device that they use for everything in their personal life, which blows my mind. I can't believe that people do that, but they do. And so, you know, you go from this period where, you know, less than half of households had a computer to most people in the United States have a computer in their pocket, that, that, that's a really big shift in consumer trends and, and access to information. And it really sort of took a while to take hold because you had the sort of early generation smartphones, which were really the BlackBerry style. They had a keyboard. They, they didn't really have apps. They couldn't do that much other than sort of it was really easy to type email and, and text messages. And then you had the failed experiment. I had an Apple Newton, which was you know <laughs> the, the precursor to the iPad and the iPhone in a lot of ways. And really, in 2007, the iPhone was what created what we have now with this explosion of apps and the ability to do computer-like things on your phone. I mean, it was sort of inconceivable that you would create Excel documents on an old BlackBerry. And that's, you know, maybe not pleasant to do on an iPhone, but certainly possible. Yeah, it has transformed the way that people can interact with software. And, and that larger installed base of smartphone users has led to these really rich app communities, right? And, and developers deciding to create all these things for mobile. It's also changed how we live. I mean, if you know, obviously you weren't working back in the in the <laughs> mid to late nineties, but even when I, you know, in nineteen ninety nine, I worked at Upro.com, a top twenty five website, and we will probably refer to them more than once today. <laughs> but we had to have people that were on call, and we we assigned them a phone <laughs> because they might have their own smartphone. They probably all had their own cell phone of some sort, but it didn't necessarily have reliable service. It wasn't so now because we all have smartphones in our pocket. Do you ever feel like you're off? No, I'm always working. Yeah, <laughs> I'm always, I, and, and, and some of that's the nature of the work we do too, where it's like you know, it's it's media. There's stuff going on on Twitter. Like we like to stay tuned in, but some of that is it's hard to put it down. It is, but the reality is, if you have a question about a story of mine, and I'm standing in line at, at Disney World, I live in South Florida, and I don't answer you until after the ride. 
no one is going to get hurt. We're not covering the president, you know, we're not covering politics. We're not covering breaking news for the most part. But the fundamental change is because you can, you feel like you have to. And that's that's sort of a big change. And I guess it works sometimes. Sometimes it's a real benefit because you can clear up 10, with 10 seconds of interaction, something that might take 20 minutes if you had to research it on your own. On the other hand, you know, it does mean it's very hard to disconnect. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things that uh, we also noticed with the last 25 years in tech is that it's become much easier to connect with people online. So, so we move from this, you know, AOL and Yahoo kind of directory style discussion forum uh, interaction to not even anonymous, you know, that I am who I am on Facebook, you know, like, let's be friends, let's communicate and let's join groups together. There's a major shift in the type of content that people are consuming online and what the media landscape looks like. It, it's broadened the world. I mean, because at my 10th reunion, my 10th high school reunion, I was legitimately interested in catching up with people. I had a pretty small high school class, 130 something people. And, you know, maybe 10 of them were people I had some interaction with on a, on a regular basis. Now, I have no interest in a high school reunion. Do, do, is there <laughs> anyone from your high school class you don't know what they're doing because of Facebook? You know, I not only know their job, I know what they had for lunch yesterday. <laughs> you know what, Dan? I will tell you, I got wind of my upcoming high school reunion, my 10-year high school reunion, because uh, someone posted something on Facebook and was like, you know, please add people to this group. We're, we're trying to coordinate. So uh, I am surprisingly up to speed with what's going on with, with people in high school. I think I'm still going to go to that 10 year reunion. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously it changes a lot as you get older and people <laughs> move farther away from home. Um, because for me, you know, my high school reunions tend to be Thanksgiving time back in Boston. That's an expensive flight. It's just not that many people anymore. You know, it's, it's not that I don't want to, but it's very easy. I, I mean, I've had more personal conversations with people I didn't really know in high school now. I mean, even earlier today, I just threw out, hey, I'm going to stand an optical to buy new glasses. Has anyone had any experiences? And a whole bunch of people from my high school, some of whom I knew, some of whom I don't know that well, jumped in with answers. And, and it, it's, it's very much changed our ability to do anything. I mean, you could crowdsource information on you know anything from where to buy glasses to should I take a trip here? We spend a lot of time talking about Facebook. I think it's worth at least giving a name check to MySpace because <laughs> before Facebook, we had MySpace, and and that really got us to I think the social media world that we live in now. I had a MySpace page, um, but I had a MySpace page because you know I was trying to be a media personality. The difference between MySpace and Facebook is kind of the democracy of it. On Facebook, famous or not famous, you all have sort of the same platform. On MySpace, you signed up for MySpace mostly to follow bands and sports figures and comics and other, you know, entertainers that you liked. So it was really it was really more about that type of social interaction, whereas Facebook is a much broader, you know, I have my mom commenting on posts and my high school teachers and my my son's friends. It's it's a very different universe. As people's uh, connections have gotten stronger, you know, we look at you know their ability to access you know high speed internet and things like that. Um, what these services have delivered has really expanded. So you see Facebook getting into live content, for example, um, and you see other platforms coming in and delivering content in a way they just couldn't have in the early '90s mid '90s, even you know mid 2000s. And I'm thinking specifically about streaming here. I, I think in some ways Facebook is pioneering becoming platform agnostic. I mean, right now, if you watch video on Facebook, 
you you already have the tools right there to talk about it, you know, to, to sort of do what like talking dead does, but while something airs and in an uncurated way. I see more platforms like why is Netflix not offering that? While I'm watching a show, why can't I be interacting with all the other people watching it at that same time or who have already seen it, you know, to sort of have this community? And I think you're starting to see more platforms bleed into each other. You know, is Facebook a video platform? I think it's fair to say that it is. In the grand scheme of grievances against Netflix, I'd say that's a pretty small one for what they deliver. Uh, I mean, this this is a company that has has really kind of transformed the media industry and sidestepped traditional cable in a way that just wasn't possible, you know, 15 years ago. And they've also created this current environment where content is king. Uh, you know, you see with the the Disney Comcast battle for Fox that name properties are just worth so much and give Netflix a ton of credit for really starting a lot of franchises that were not named properties. It is very difficult to put a television show, whether it's on air or streaming or in any format and get anyone to watch it. I mean, what does your Netflix queue look like? I have about 60 shows I'm never going to get to. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I have I have so much to catch up on. I'm working my way through the recently launched uh, season of Arrested Development right now. And I'm about <laughs> midway through. And I got to say, it's a little disappointing uh, as someone that's a long term fan. We, we, that's, that's on my list. We just finished uh, season two of Jessica Jones and I'm about to tackle Luke Cage, but I have all the things that my friends and family have said, Oh, you'd love it. And I bet I'd love it. And if I ever get the flu and I'm stuck at home for two weeks watching TV, maybe I'll catch up, but it's an embarrassment of riches, which is made name properties. I mean, th- there is a reason star Wars sold for $4 billion. There's a reason these, you know, this this collection of Fox assets, which includes the Simpsons and rights to a bunch of Marvel characters, which could go back to Disney. They're worth so much because there's it, it's so much easier if you're launching a, a television show based on Jurassic Park than if you're just launching a television show based on scary dinosaurs. It's a wonderful time to be a TV consumer. Uh, Dan, we would be remiss if in the grand scheme of tech and disruption over the past 25 years, we did not talk a little bit about e-commerce and Amazon. Do you remember the first time you made an online purchase? Uh, it must have been in like the late 90s. Like my mom was super into eBay back then, and I was like a, a pretty avid baseball card collector. And so uh, there were a lot of times where I was like trying to get this one specific card, and you know, like some guy in Oklahoma was selling it on eBay, and so I was like involved in the auction. So I think that was kind of like my early uh, online purchase experience. It's funny. I would say eBay is probably my first online purchase, and it. Online purchasing for me went from dabbling in eBay to occasionally buying on Amazon or some other, you know, random website to now I order from Amazon maybe four times a week and I probably use Instacart at least three or four times a month to get groceries and whatnot. Yeah, and and for all of the activity that we experience and see with e-commerce, what's incredible to me is it is still such a small portion of overall retail activity. You know, for as much as people lean on Prime and create all these purchases for things that they would never normally buy online, it's a fraction of the overall marketplace. It's about 13%, if I remember <laughs> correctly. And what's funny about it is it's amazing how often at Christmas time it was reported that digital sales are bigger than physical sales, which is just not true under any circumstances. But what we are starting to see change now, and I think it's going to tilt those numbers greatly, is 
Amazon and everybody else, Walmart, Costco, whoever it is, are figuring out last mile delivery. I'm sure you saw the Amazon announcement where they're they're building a fleet of vans with privately operated vans that are going to go from their warehouses to do individual orders. And you see the rise of Instacart, which is doing which is, you know, people in their cars doing individual orders. And McDonald's uses Uber Eats in a lot of markets to to deliver your soggy, horrible Big Mac because <laughs> I don't understand who's getting McDonald's delivered. But that's going to be the next transformation and that will really change retail because you might actually go to the supermarket, pick out all your stuff and then have it delivered. Like the, this whole omni-channel world where you know, convenience is key is going to mean a lot of things to a lot of people. I live in a high-rise building. Right? Maybe you do too. But it's hard to, to buy some things. Water. I don't want to carry water from my parking garage to my house. So I have it delivered. You know, there, and it comes right to my door. There's so many things like that that you're going to see in this in this next group of transformation. I'm glad you mentioned kind of looking forward in the future because we spent a lot of time kind of looking in the past so far in the show, and I want to spend some time kind of looking at into our crystal ball a little bit. You know, what what do we expect to continue to happen? And I think it might be a little irresponsible to forecast out 25 years. But to your point about transportation, I think that's a major trend to watch. And I think that we have seen over the past maybe 10 to 15 years in particular, this tech creep, right? You have these companies that are not traditional tech companies or not traditional financial companies kind of merging together. And so like, you know, PayPal is kind of a hybrid company, right? Like they're in payments, but they're really a tech company. Uber is a transportation company, but they're really a tech company. And I think that's only going to continue. And earlier this year, I moderated a panel at the Electronic Transactions Association. And one of the people on my panel was was the tech guy at Shake Shack. <laughs> I would argue that Shake Shack is a tech company. <laughs> they're, they're not a pioneer. They're, they're really more looking at what other people are doing and how they can adopt it. But the days where any company that interacts with people, unless your model is that you're folksy and you don't have technology, you have to have a technology component. And the question is going to be how far it goes. The, the gentleman from Shake Shack, one of the things he brought up was we could absolutely have the technology. So when you walk in, we know what your past order was. We know what you're allergic to. We know what you like and we don't. But we don't think our customers are going to want that, <laughs> that that's going to be creepy to them as opposed to, yeah, you can go into the app and pull up your past order and it feels a little bit you know, less you know, big brothery. So there's going to be a whole array of here's all the things we can do. Should we do them? You know, in healthcare, your phone might be able to order an ambulance. That's really good. But do you want, you know, everything you do broadcast in that same fashion? You probably don't. Yeah, I know on the Wednesday show, Christine spent some time talking about like kind of teledoc services and the idea of e-health, you know, not having to go to a doctor to actually meet your doctor. So if you're really sick being at home, and I think that that's something that's really appealing to a lot of people, that's going to be pretty disruptive in the healthcare space. And, you know, so I use Teladoc now and Teladoc is very limited. The couple of times I've used it has basically been my wife and son both got let's say strep throat and I have all the symptoms and it's dumb to go in and, you know, pay for a, an office visit. So for $25, you can do Teladoc. But when you start to marry Teladoc with something like an, like an echo look and some of these two way devices or the Apple watch, which can s transmit health information, you're going to start having office like appointments from your living room. And besides that being transformative, it's it's also convenient <laughs> that it frees up time to do other things. So, you know, in the next couple years, 
the changes are going to be incremental. It's going to be more automated delivery. It's going to be easier access to stuff, things like Teladoc getting better. Netflix maybe being a little bit more intuitive about what you should be watching. I don't think it's going to be, you know, two years from now, robot overlords or, you know, food pills. Yeah. And and what's tempting, I, I think, is to look at a lot of these spaces and a lot of these themes that we've talked about already, you know, connectivity, mobile, e-commerce, and say, okay, those have happened already, or maybe they're in the process of happening. And for investing purposes, it might not feel like you're hopping on some really hot trend. And to the point about e-commerce still being such a tiny portion of overall retail activity, you need to remember that these are still pretty early on in their growth ramps as major trends. And, and it's all inter. There's there's a huge interplay. I mean, we haven't really talked about the Internet of Things, which is the whole universe of connected devices, but. Take something simple now, like Amazon has its its little buttons where you could put next to your washing machine a Wi-Fi button where you when you run out of detergent, you hit it and it puts it on your order list and you get more in two days. That type of functionality is going to improve. I mean, I've been to CES two out of the last three years, and they're showing the same refrigerators that can tell you when your eggs have spoiled and order new ones. And what we don't know is how much consumers are going to want. There's a certain level of home automation that's going to catch on. I mean, a lot of people have doorbells and security cameras, but we may not want the full automation that, that's possible, and it may never hit a saturation point. We might be happy with what we can control from you know, our Amazon Alexa device. So that's really where, where some of the investing plays are, is how far is this going to go? And is the average person, I mean, is your generation going to want total automation? Do, do, are you going to want to never have to think about, I don't know, buying toilet paper because it's automatic? Or is it really not that big a deal to pick up some toilet paper when you're at the store? I think smart home and connected home is one of the easiest trends to forecast out for the next 10 years and say that we're going to see more and more of these devices coming in, especially as you see Amazon get really good at getting the price down for, for those Echo Dot uh, devices. You know, It's easy to have several of them in your home. How many do you own? I don't own any, but I know that you have a ton. And like, I, I know so many fools are like, oh, I've got like five in the house. <laughs> I have four Echoes in a basically a three-bedroom house. Uh, we have Google Home at our at our little summer home or a little vacation home, and I probably own I don't know something else along those lines. But basically, I got to be honest. I use Alexa as a weather device, as primarily a music player or a podcast device. I haven't hooked it up to my lights. I haven't hooked it up because, frankly. My light switches are right when I walk in the door. It, it's just as easy to hit the light switch as it is to say, Alexa, turn my lights on. Yeah, so so that's the struggle. And, and I think if you're looking at kind of gadgety type stuff for the future, a, a great thing to keep in mind is if this stuff is very expensive for people to adopt, adoption is going to be slow. I think that's one of the struggles that we see with VR right now, right? Like that's a, that's a space that a lot of people are super interested in. They think it's a really compelling growth story. Well, v, like really full VR rigs are expensive to have in your house. And if that cost is being passed along to the end consumer, adoption is going to be pretty slow. So if you see devices that are connected home devices and they're on the cheaper side, know that it's probably more likely that that's going to get adopted quicker. And to speak to VR, there's a form factor problem. Um, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so I bought the, the $200, you get a lightsaber and you can battle. And the problem is you slip your iPhone into a headset and it's very heavy. And after playing for like 10 minutes, you have a headache and your neck hurts. Like it's not as fun as, you know, 
I've, I've done some incredible immersive VR experiences. Disney has an amazing one at Disney Springs where you're at literally in Star Wars. And, but, you know, that's probably a $20,000 rig you're wearing while you're doing that. It's just not quite there yet. I'd argue with home automation that it is. And Echo Dot's, what, 30 bucks if you buy a few of them? Yeah. Yeah, it's cheap. And and I think that the interaction makes sense to a lot of people. It's, it's fairly intuitive. If you're looking for uh, kind of investment advice for the next five to ten years, you know, we talked about how it will look a lot similar to what it has looked like. It will be kind of incremental. And I, I agree with you, but I think that there are one, penetration rates are very low for a lot of these trends we're talking about in the US. But if you take a look out at the entire world, they're even lower, particularly in developing economies. And so keep that in mind. There's this great quote from William Gibson the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed, or something like that. And that's something to keep in mind, where if you're an American consumer, you're probably getting a look at a lot of types of technology that hasn't quite made it out to other parts of the world yet. And so um, if you see businesses like an IGE, or, you know, that's taking a model that has been proven to work, you know, here in the United States with Netflix. And taking it to a developing market, I think mobile payments is another space that's super interesting uh, if you take a global perspective. And one thing we haven't touched on is sort of uh, wireless and internet delivery. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of at the dawn of five G, and when we have five G networks, which you know, if the Sprint T-Mobile merger goes through, that they might be the first. You're going to have the ability to deliver a more of a broadband internet experience through phone connectivity as that spreads around the world. It's going to be very disruptive. Pricing is going to come down and the ability for sort of everyone to take advantage of, you know, all of this content, all of these services, it just changes. So that's really, you know, the investment opportunity of how is Internet going to be delivered going forward. So to give a sense of where we were and where we are now, Dan, I'm going to run through the largest market cap companies in 1993 and the largest market cap companies now. I think you're going to notice a little bit of a trend here. <laughs> so, in 1993, you have GM, ExxonMobil, Ford Motor, IBM, General Electric. Fast forward to 2018, you have Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Facebook. So, tech goes from being one of the five to being the entire list, um, which really speaks to how much this space has kind of taken over the, the economy and, and the broad market in general. Um, looking at that list, you know, we see that there was pretty much 100% turnover over the past 25 years. Of those five companies that you see on there now, which one is the one you're most convinced will be on there in 25 years? So I don't get to bet on a BlackBerry comeback and being there at the top in 25 years. <laughs> you can, but I think the odds are stacked against you. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm kidding. And credit to, to BlackBerry for, for revamping its business as it has. Um, I, I could see any of them. But I tend to be an Apple loyalist, and it is a concern that I think when last I looked, 62% of Apple's business is the iPhone, or 62% of their revenue. But I do believe that as phone technology changes to whatever it becomes, implants or who knows what, I think there's going to be a brand loyalty to Apple, and their ability to build secondary billion-dollar businesses has been very strong. So... Again, I could I could take any of them on this list, but I would lean towards Apple just because it really does have the the shiniest brand. For my money, I think I'm going with Amazon. Uh, I, I see them, and I see a business that has taken advantage of the cloud with AWS, which is another trend that we didn't really touch on too much. But they have this cash cow business, and they have this really scalable, amazing e-commerce platform. And oh, by the way, they're trying to get into people's homes with connected devices. They're they're building out their streaming options. 
they seem to have a lead in a market that is going to be very tough for other people to catch up to. They do. I, I just think that if you look at the costs of what Amazon is doing, there are global forces bringing them down. That automated delivery, the the, the cost. I mean, in 2000, putting up a simple e-commerce site uh, at my family's ladder and scaffolding business cost hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. You paid, you know, a significant amount every month. That's just a commodity now through Shopify, or you can do it a hundred different ways for almost no money. So I do think some things that are right now unique to Amazon and its supply chain are going to be readily available to almost everyone and that there will be players out there that can sort of disrupt some of Amazon's niches. Not that I don't think Amazon will be a major player in in 25 years, but I do think they actually face some competition that they don't have now. Well, Dan, I guess we'll just have to get back on the horn and check in in 2043. 25 years (laughs) from now, I put it on my calendar. All right. Thanks for hopping on, Dan. Thank you. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or if you just want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Dan Klein, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on.